Mary McCord, I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law, and also a visiting professor of law. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So Mary, I saw you at the Eradicate Hate Conference in Pittsburgh, which was created there, obviously because the shooting that happened in 2018, it brought together experts from a wide range of disciplines together, many of us for the first time actually being in person with those during a pandemic. Is it a good thing to see people who deal with extremism all day in person? That's a great question. It was a good thing. Pittsburgh was a really good convening for one reason, because people had been not in person for a very long time during the pandemic. And so it's just important, I think, for people that work in this space to sometimes get face to face with their colleagues. But I also think bringing together private sector like tech companies, researchers, lawyers, victims of hate crimes and other domestic extremist violence That ability to bring those different perspectives into a room or into several rooms to share their different approaches to the problem, for me, I thought was very beneficial because even though I've had engagements with those different sectors in different environments, all being there at once, I thought was very helpful. And particularly sometimes panels put people who are coming from very different backgrounds and who have very different roles, putting them all on one panel, tackling the same issues. I mean, we had panels, right, that had Facebook along with civil rights and civil liberties organizations, along with, you know, researchers all on the same panel. And all on their best behavior, which was nice, especially with that particular panel. For me, I was struck by the fact that it was the first time that I had seen, you know, some old friends, some new faces, people who are committed to mitigating the issue of violence and extremism in this country in person since January 6th, right? That happened, obviously, it feels like seven years ago in some ways, but it was really great to see people in person who have really been dealing with the fallout that we're all still dealing with from the insurrection. You know, I know that going back and doing some research recently, I found a discussion you had, I believe, on NPR from three days before the insurrection. And I don't know if you recall this, you probably do to some degree, but you basically said that the disinformation out there about the stolen election and related topics was basically a calling card for extremists, not just to exercise their First Amendment rights on January 6th at the Capitol, but to engage in acts of violence. You were concerned before January 6th that January 6th was going to be what it was. Is that right? Very concerned. And, you know, part of that is because we've been watching this call and response throughout the previous year of, frankly, the former president, President Trump, calling out to his base and to those really supporting his extremist views and them taking action. So, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, he was himself very anti public safety measures like shutdown orders that some of the governors enacted in their states. 
and said so very vocally. And, you know, his base supporters went out and well-armed stormed state capitals. They did this in Michigan. They did this in Idaho. They did this elsewhere. We saw that throughout the summer of 2020 with racial justice protests, where you would have the former president calling those who were protesting against police brutality, calling them violent anarchists and Antifa and suggesting that his base needed to take action to prevent rioting and looting. And they did. They went out while armed. They stood on street corners and they intimidated peaceful protesters. And in sometimes much, much worse, you know, we've got somebody on trial right now, Kyle Rittenhouse, for shooting protesters during a racial justice demonstration. And then, of course, the rhetoric around the election starting from before the election, seeding the disinformation about mail-in voting is more susceptible to election fraud. If I don't win this election, it means it was rigged. All of that happened before the election and then was doubled down on after the election. And we saw that impacting people on the ground. And so part of that was just things that all of us could have seen that made me nervous. But part of it is we at ICAB have been working with researchers who track social media extremist propaganda and planning. And we work closely with them every day. And we were seeing this planning for what happened on January 6th. We were seeing it wasn't just talk. It was people mobilizing, getting hotel rooms, talking about bringing their guns to Washington, D.C., talking about preventing Congress from certifying the Electoral College vote. We raised those flags and others did as well. And that's something that, of course, government's really looking into now what went wrong here? Why did law enforcement fail to prepare for what so many of us saw coming? You mentioned disinformation, but I I think it's also something else, right? You know, we saw in Dallas, QAnon supporters from around the country came because they thought that JFK Jr. was going to come back at the place where his father was assassinated as part of this broader like QAnon fantasy conspiracy. And, you know, hundreds of people showed up there. Obviously, he didn't come back. Other dead celebrities didn't come back. But it makes me think, again, sort of that, why are you buying into this? Like, what is it? And I have to think that part of this is about creating community, that believing things that maybe you don't understand, but that puts you in contact with others who believe the same thing is meaningful, right? That's human nature to try to find that. And it's unfortunate that there are grifters and liars who are selling that to people to try to pull them in. And so I think this is the challenge of sort of the landscape of how disinformation, how these sort of disparate ideas that are becoming popular are also animating extremists and how extremists are going to try to exploit that. So that being said about QAnon and the landscape, I think accountability is going to be critical in response to what we're seeing. So I know now you are engaging in a new effort. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I am part of a, the legal team that is representing the House Special Select Committee investigating January 6th. And that representation involves defending against a lawsuit brought by former President Trump, suing both the archivists of the United States, uh, the Biden administration, but also the committee and the committee chair, Benny Thompson, to try to prevent the archivists from turning over presidential records to the committee that the committee has requested in furtherance of its investigation. And so the committee is investigating to try to find out the role of the former president, his advisors, and others in fomenting the violence, 
that occurred on January 6th, what they knew, at what points in time, and all of this toward the possibility of legislative changes, right? Some could be changes to the Electoral Count Act. That was the act that governs the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th, which was disrupted for five hours, but has some problems with it, you know, itself, the way that act leaves some ambiguity about what can be done. And certainly the president and his surrogates tried to take advantage of some of that ambiguity, I think. It also could lead to legislation that has to do with security and law enforcement, could lead to legislation that has to do with a president trying to use the Department of Justice or the military. So all kinds of possible legislation that could come out of that. Basically, Mary, you don't dabble in light topics, right? <laughs> I mean, you've been you've been holding people accountable or seeking accountability for many years. When you were 10-year-old Mary, did you think you would be holding people in power in this country accountable, that you would be making efforts to try to make life more difficult for extremists that want to undermine our democratic institutions. How did you get here? Yeah, no, not at 10 year old. I, I wanted to be a writer. I thought I would write books and I am a writer, but You're I don't write writer. books. I, I, I write briefs and <laughs> it was not some part of lifelong plan or goal. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Missouri, the St. Louis area. Originally, I went to journalism school at the University of Missouri, Columbia, thus the writer aspect. And I think journalism school is actually a pretty good precursor to law school because essentially you become a professional question asker when you're hmm. a journalist. And that's in many ways what a lawyer is. I think that curiosity and wanting to know the answers to things started back when I was young, but then had an overlay of law and analytical processes applied to just about everything. Too many things my family would probably say, <laughs> you know, is what led me kind of to where I where I am. And when I became a lawyer, I wanted to, I've always been interested in public service. In fact, before I became a lawyer, just with my journalism degree, I worked for us for the state legislature in Missouri as their public information law officer, which is what made me think of going to law school. So hmm. public service was always something that was more motivating to me than private practice. And that led me to become a prosecutor. You know, I became a prosecutor in DC, a federal prosecutor in 1994. We were still in the midst of, you know, a pretty terrible crack cocaine epidemic with a lot of murders in the city. I lived in the city. I thought being a prosecutor would allow me to actually give back and do something for the community to try to make it hmm. a safer place. And then, of course, you know, years go by and the threats change. And, you know, obviously I lived through 9-11 here in D.C. As, as, you know, everybody alive lived through and it changed their life. I mean, it was totally life changing in so many ways, big and small. But even then, I didn't immediately go into national security. I was still, you know, at the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting cases. I prosecuted child sex offense cases. I prosecuted drug cases, a whole variety of different things. And then had the opportunity, was asked to go work in national security at Maine Justice and, you know, really went from it just being a piece of my job because I had become the criminal chief at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I was a criminal chief, in fact, when the Benghazi attack happened, right, an attack, an extremist attack on our mission in Benghazi, Libya, killing a U.S. ambassador and three other Americans. I was the criminal division chief in an office that had that case to prosecute. So I actually moved over to Maine Justice National Security right before the capture operation that captured one of the people who was brought back here to the United States, tried, convicted, and is now serving jail time for his role in that attack. So I'm sorry, just I, I'm laughing just to, 
we started at journalism school. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is exactly yeah. it shows like the the paths. I don't think it always is so clear. I think is is the point that you're making. You can yes. start in journalism right. school. Next thing you know, you're dealing with sort of Benghazi. So I just wanted to flag that. Keep going, yeah. please. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people will say to me now, because I've been really fortunate to have had an amazing career, able to be involved in really rewarding work. You know, from that Ben Kazi case, you know, I stayed in the National Security Division for three years. This was the three years, uh, you know, as soon as I got there, ISIS declared the caliphate and it was 2014 in the summer of just horrible, horrible atrocities. The worst sort of foreign terrorist threat we'd seen since right after 9-11. Yet at the same time, domestic extremism was on the rise, mm -hmm. and we were very interested in that. And that's something that I've very much carried through in terms of my interest in my speaking, my writing, and my litigating since leaving the Department of Justice in 2017. But people will say to me, Mary, I want to do what you did. So how do I do it? You know, these are people who are like in their 20s. And, right. and I'm like, I didn't plan any of this. And one of the pieces of advice that I give to all young lawyers and even people in undergrad is don't plan out your life, you know, and try to figure out step one, step two, step three to get there for a couple of reasons. One, you might then turn down opportunities that come to you that would be very, very rewarding and that would take you in a direction that you hadn't thought about, but that you really end up being happy with. But if you're so focused on this yeah. thing that you think you want, you're likely to say no to these other opportunities. The thing too is maybe you'll never get that thing that you wanted, or maybe if you do get it, you really won't even want it anymore. I mean, people change throughout their lives and what's important to them changes. And I think that the best thing to do is just work hard and be very good at what you do. And then people will notice that and opportunities yeah. will present themselves to you. And for me, that's, you know, that's how I ended up getting involved in national security. It's how I ended up getting involved also now in, you know, civil rights work. And so there's a lot of opportunity out there for people. Just don't pigeonhole yourself into one area. I can say the militias are certainly upset that you didn't have the one thing that you wanted to do and then stay <laughs> on the course, right? Because had you stayed some sort of imaginary goal that you had, you would have not made their lives a, a little bit more difficult as well. You know, these are the issues, right? This is where you've ended up. You've dealt with so much both international terrorism, domestic extremism. These are not light topics, right? And these are things that affect communities as they're happening. And so is there advice that you give people about sort of how you cope with that? Like, what's your work-life balance? What's your strategies to deal with the issues that can get heavy for anybody? I don't have great work-life balance and it's something I'm working on. And frankly, the pandemic made it worse, right? Because you just roll out of bed and start working, you know, before you even have your coffee and, you know, you work late at night because we weren't going anywhere. We were on Zoom all day long. In fact, my whole team at Georgetown, we accomplished an amazing quantity of work in terms of our litigation and our public policy work, partly because everybody spends all day, every day and all evening and all weekends working. And so now as we're knock on wood coming out of the pandemic a little bit, I'm trying to encourage myself and my team to try to get a little bit more work-life balance, but it's very challenging right now, I think, if you're in this space where you're frankly concerned about the future of our democracy. And this is the first time in my lifetime that I actually felt like that was on shaky ground. Many Americans just assume that 
our democracy will just continue to function and that we will continue to be a superpower country and we will be economically prosperous and technologically advanced and the government will just keep on keeping on. But I think what we've seen is there are real vulnerabilities in our system. And when the system was first created, our founders said it's a republic if you can keep it. They called it an experiment. That experiment with all of its various weaknesses has lasted for quite a long time now, but I do worry about it. The polarization in the people has is also become polarization in our elected bodies. This lack of critical thinking and diligence that I was talking about with voters, we're seeing it in Congress, we're seeing it in state legislatures. You know, the culture wars and the willingness to, I think, put aside principles for winning is really damaging to the democratic fundamentals that our our system here in the U.S. is based on. I got to say, though, I asked, how do you cope with these issues? And you pivoted to the threat to our democratic institutions. And and I hear you. I think a lot of us in this space from different disciplines have that same concern and that fear. But I think what makes people effective at pushing back against that legally through research through allyship, through you know a whole range of different ways, requires the people that are doing that to be in the right headspace. Is it coffee? Is it right. board games? I mean, is there anything? The heaviness of that is a challenge, right? It is a challenge, and you know, I sometimes joke I tend to be a glass half empty instead of a glass half full person, even though I want to be a glass half full <laughs> person. But I think you know, as many years as you're a prosecutor, you see a lot of really bad things. You know, prosecuting child sex offenses mm. similarly is like, how do you get out of that headspace? My best outlet is when I go for a run. I've now had seven knee surgeries, including a full knee replacement, but I run still. And it's because that's my think time. That's my get my head together time. It might be that I'm thinking about these heavy issues, but it might not be. But either way, it's that chance to be away from the computer, away from the phone. I do not run listening to music or anything else. I just run or throw one leg out in front of the other. And- that's good. Like running. I mean, for some people that works and that's helpful, right? Like for me, it's eating key lime pie all day long, but you know, whatever, right? We yeah. don't teach yeah. his own. Can you tell me about somebody who's been an inspiration to you that may not be in this field, but has really sort of helped motivate you and enable you to be as effective or thoughtful on these issues as you are? Well, there've been a lot of different people in my life who've been mentors and inspirational. I would say the judge I clerked for out of law school, I clerked for a Republican appointed judge, a Ronald Reagan appointed judge. He still is one of my closest mentors and advisors. He married my husband and I, we stay in close contact. And I think he's a real model of somebody who, and I mentioned that he was a Republican appointee because even though I don't wear politics on my sleeve, probably obvious to most people that I'm on the progressive side of the divide. Although I've worked for Republicans and Democrats, you know, throughout my whole career in the federal government. And I think Judge Hogan, the judge I clerked for, is a perfect model of how you can be affiliated with one party or the other, but it doesn't define you. And you can still treat everyone with respect, be civil to everyone. And when I was clerking for him, I can say, I never thought a single opinion that he ever wrote or that he ever, you know, a single decision he ever made was ever driven by politics. Mm -hmm. And that's what we don't see enough of right Mm -hmm. now. Those people exist. I mean, I try to be one of those people as well. Like we do the right thing in the right moment. And 
I have a strong law enforcement background. I mean, certainly there are plenty of people on the left who think I'm way too far over on one side and people on the right who think I'm way too far over on the other side. And that's where I want to be. I want to be right where, you know, I want to be able to relate to people coming from different political views. And so, you know, I'd love for people to think of me the way I think of Judge Hogan. I don't always meet that mark, but that's what I think is so necessary today. So when I see right now people, frankly, like Liz Cheney, coming out and standing up for her principles. I may disagree with her on many, many policy issues, but she has integrity, she has principles, and she saw that some boundaries got crossed you know, in the last four years, but particularly on January 6th, and she is not going to be pushed into a corner of culture politics just to win. And I have enormous respect for that. You mentioned you're a bit of a glass half empty, and you just cited some hope, right? Some examples of people who have modeled the possibility of what can be, what is right, that it still exists and that others can use that as a model. There are groups dedicated to this, of of getting people together who may be from different parts of the country or don't necessarily agree politically and for them to have a conversation. Because at the end of the day, we realize we probably have a lot more in common with people. I know there's not one thing, Mary, but to the degree that we need to find some solutions there, Is accountability like the first step? I think accountability is a very important step, but I also think we can't rely on that alone because accountability also sometimes can itself be polarizing, if that makes sense, right? Because right now what we're seeing is rallying around the January 6th defendants as though I've actually seen elected officials saying that they were being treated like the foreign terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. Now, put aside that some of that treatment was unethical and unconstitutional, but there's certainly nothing comparable between the January 6th defendants most of whom are not even detained pending their trials, the vast majority are not, and all of them are getting full due process of law in ways that foreign terrorists did not. But to me, this is all about saying, look how accountability has gone wrong here, and it's being used, accountability is being used Mm. to further the divide. So I do think it's important, and particularly for January 6th, we can't have an insurrection and have everybody go home and go back to what they do on a day-to-day basis without accountability. But I do think we have to look at like how that's now being used as another polarizing issue. And this brings me a bit to, I want to circle back, I know we're wrapping up to something you raised earlier, which is so important, which is that sense of belonging. Because I think a lot of the reason we do end up seeing people gravitate toward extremism, whether it was foreign terrorist organizations that we've had in the past, or whether it's current domestic extremism, is this sense of belonging. And so when we are holding people accountable, I think we also have to be careful not to paint with such a broad brush that people who are not yet fully bought into extremism We don't want to drive them further there because they feel like, well, you're painting me as a racist. You're painting me as an insurrectionist and I'm not, but darn it, if you're going to call me that, you know, I can at least go join those people and they appreciate me and they respect me and I can find community with them. If I'm out here trying to stand up for myself, you're just criticizing me. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I do. You are. We don't want to further polarize people by sort of putting them in categories. And we need to understand that those who might be the stereotype in terms of susceptible to joining a militia or white supremacist group, 
some of those people who are susceptible may have also legitimate concerns, yes. legitimate grievances, and we ought to find a way to solve those issues for people as opposed to pushing them further into the arms of the extremists. That's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of it is fear-based, right? I mean, there's, a, I think, a lot of fear among the white majority in this country that they are not going to be a majority for much longer, and they are worried that they are losing not just economically, but status. And, you know, that's base white supremacy <laughs> views, but I think a lot of people who feel that way wouldn't think of it as white supremacist at all. They would just think it's kind of zero sum, right? Like if other people gain, that must mean I'm losing. And tackling that zero sum mentality is really hard and it would take way more than government, right? It takes all of our institutions, our private sector to recognize what is built into their own system that has allowed that kind of mentality to exist and how can we even the playing field in ways that people won't be scared and fearful because when they get scared and fearful, they do things like what we saw on January 6th. Where can people go to learn more about your work or yourself? Well, certainly ICAP, we have our website at Georgetown Law, and you can find about a lot of our litigation there, as well as a lot of our policy work last year. In particular, we did a whole lot of fact sheets about extremist violence, political violence, and particularly militia violence. And what is it to be a militia? I think there's a lot of confusion in this country that militias are protected by the Second Amendment, which is just absolutely not the case at all. Militias were meant to be a way for the state to call forth able-bodied people in defense of the state. And that was built into our federal constitution and every state constitution. And these private militias taking up arms either against the state or against other people is not sanctioned anywhere in all 50 states. And so we did a lot of work on that. And you can find that also on the ICAP website at Georgetown Law. I try to write some things sometimes, and, and you can find that there as well. And uh, I'd encourage people, I, I'm always happy to respond to people who reach out, talk with groups, whether it's at universities or community groups or others. And I'm happy to do that as well as others on my team. I also just want to congratulate you for not being on Twitter. <laughs> I think, I think that's yes, a wise I will never choice. be on Twitter. <laughs> Very wise choice that you've made there. So Mary, thank you so much for taking some time. Really appreciate this discussion. Really appreciate your leadership. I feel like every time I have the pleasure of catching up with you, I learn something new as well. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Thank you, Orrin. I feel the same about you. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.